Today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is, and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome once again here to NCF, New Creation Fellowship. So honored and so blessed to be a part of this community and to stand in front of you uh, as uh, your servant this morning. Just want to also welcome those of you who are visiting us, maybe if you're out of town, if you're visiting uh, for a few weeks, or if you are considering the claims of Jesus, we especially want to single you out and just say, welcome. Uh, We know coming to a church, especially a church that meets on a school campus, might seem a little bit odd, but we hope and pray that our time together will, as odd as it feels now, may become something more comfortable to a point where it might be familiar and even credible in your eyes to the point where you would seriously consider the claims of Jesus himself, namely that he is your God whom you have been created and destined to live in fellowship with. We hope and pray that that would happen and this would be the beginning steps or maybe the step that will lead you to that conviction and conclusion. So without further ado, would you mind closing your eyes and joining me in prayer, asking for God to bless our time. Father, we pray that you would speak to us now after living these past six days again, confronted with all that is wrong with life and maybe what's all that's wrong with us. Now, Father, yet again, we pray that you would speak and comfort and encourage, edify us, And most importantly, equip us with your word so that we can be stirred into living out our identity as children of God. Lord, I also pray for those among us here who may be considering the claims of Jesus. Father, their journey of truth has led them here. And we hope and pray, God, that this place would be one in which would be a beginning place of them living out the truth and receiving that truth in full. Father, we pray now that you would speak to us as you promised you would when your saints gather together and that you would now bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people together said, amen and amen. I see dead people. Those were the iconic words that came out of the Hollywood blockbuster hit in 1999 entitled The Sixth Sense. And given that some of you in here weren't even old enough to feed yourself back in 99, let me give you a quick synopsis of what this movie is about. A little boy born with supernatural powers can communicate with the dead. And as a result, he's constantly haunted with seeing dead people constantly around him, constantly surrounding him wherever he may go. Now, given that fact, you would imagine 
imagine as it is so that this boy would be traumatized and that indeed that's what this boy is struggling with he is overwhelmed by these visions of dead people all around that he's right on the verge of having a complete mental breakdown and so in comes in bruce willis's character who plays a child psychiatrist by the name of malcolm right and here he is trying to help this boy completely unaware of this sixth sense that he possesses and in one crucial aspect of the movie he visits this young boy who is now his patient right right after he's had another momentary lapse of mental breakdown and it's in this crucial scene that the young boy tells the doctor his secret he says it with the words that i began the message with i see dead people Now, as disturbing as that line is, it's not nearly as disturbing as the overall dialogue that comes out of that sentence. Take a listen to how it begins. Cole, the little boy, I see dead people. Malcolm, in your dreams? Cole shakes his head, no. While you're awake, Cole nods. Dead people like in graves and coffins? Cole, walking around like regular people. They don't see each other. They only see what they want to see. They don't know they're dead they only see what they want to see they don't know that they're dead those two sentences those last two sentences are very relevant for our passage today why because if you want to get a gist of what jesus is trying to teach in this parable it's that very thing jesus wants to make sure that his listeners are not dead people who only see what they want to see except for the thing they need to see the most namely that they are dead now by saying that jesus is kind of making an audacious claim he is saying that there are in existence dead people out there walking around who don't see that they are dead and indeed that is what jesus is saying but don't misunderstand he's not being literal here in terms of physical dead people he's not talking about zombies walking around who think they're still alive no he's talking about spiritually dead people According to Christ, there are many people who are spiritually dead, and yet they don't know they're spiritually dead. Quite the contrary. They think they are spiritually alive. In other words, they think they are spiritually, genuinely believers of God, yet completely unaware, they're completely blinded by the fact that they are spiritually dead. And so Jesus tells this parable because he wants to equip his listeners, including you, of how you can tell, how you can detect whether or not you could be one of these spiritually dead people who think they're spiritually alive rather than genuinely being spiritually alive. And as I tell you what this detection tool that he tells us is, you might be taken aback because it's something that many of us would never consider to be an accurate spiritual barometer of our spiritual condition. And you know what it is? It's our attitude towards material wealth our attitude towards money, our attitude toward things, our attitude to treasures of this world. According to Jesus, the best way that you can decipher on whether or not you're truly spiritually alive or spiritually dead but only think you're spiritually alive is how you see material wealth, your attitude towards material wealth. And so that's what Jesus is going to show us. And so let him do that now by going over three things I'd like to share with you this morning. Number one, let's talk about the dangerous complexity of material wealth, the dangerous complexity of material wealth. Number two, the reason for the dangerous complexity of material wealth. And then finally, the solution to the dangerous complexity of material wealth, the danger of the complexity of material wealth, the reason for it, and finally the solution for it. 
Okay, let's jump right in. First, the dangerous complexity of material wealth. Let's read again our passage where starting in verse 13, we read, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he, Jesus, said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Pause right there. Your attention, please. Our passage begins with... A gentleman, a young man who approaches Jesus and asks him something very odd, right? He asks him to help him deal with a family matter, a personal matter with regard to family money. Now, first, when you read that, you might be taken aback because here is a complete stranger. Notice how he's given the reference as someone, right? A very generic name, right? Someone, a complete stranger, approaches Jesus and asks him to get involved in a very intimate, personal matter, right? To arbitrate over a personal matter. That just seems odd, right? Well, no, not really. You see, back in the days of the ancient world, rabbis, which is what Jesus was, he's called a teacher, right? He was a rabbi. Rabbis in the ancient Jewish culture were actually given the right and therefore the duty to arbitrate over matters that dealt with civil issues as well as religious matters. And so really, whenever someone like this guy had a situation the way that he did, he would naturally go to someone of authority recognized in society. And that's what Jesus was. He was a rabbi. And so him going to Jesus, asking for him to intervene or to get involved in this very personal matter is quite normal. It makes complete sense. But What doesn't make sense, what is absolutely weird, is Jesus' response to this young man's request. What does he say in verse 14? He says, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Now, that is weird. It's weird, very weird for two reasons. Number one, I just said he's a rabbi, right? And one of the duties and responsibilities that a rabbi had for Jewish people was to do the very thing that this man is asking. And so for Jesus to say like, yo, yo, why are you coming to me about it? Who am I? It's almost as if Jesus is denying his rabbinic authority, which is something that would be highly unusual. But the second reason, and this is really the more important reason, is this is Jesus, right? This is God in the flesh. This is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He, by definition, is the one who is the judge overall, right? He is the one who will rule and judge. In fact, earlier on in this passage, before this young man approaches him, it's recorded that Jesus is doing a teaching where he's telling everybody, look, there's a day coming where I'm going to judge all of you. And I'm not just going to judge the big things that you've done wrong. I'm going to judge even the litigritty things that you think no one else knows about. I'm going to judge everything about you. Listen to what it says in verse 2 of Luke 12. He said this, The time is coming when everything that is covered up will be revealed, and all that is secret will be made known to all. Whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetops for all to hear. Kind of scary, right? But yet that's the level of authority, that's the level of judgment that Jesus has and will have over us, which begs the question, why does Jesus say what he does? Why does he seem to say that he's not the judge? Why is he saying that I have no right, I have no authority? Well, what are you doing? Well, if you take a closer listen to the young man's request in verse 13, you figure out what Jesus is saying. Listen again to what this young man says to Jesus. He says, teacher, tell my brother. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Isn't that interesting? 
Here he starts off addressing Jesus as teacher, a term of reverence, a term of authority, a term that seems to say that he is willing to recognize him as an authority that he submits to. But then in the very next breath, he has the audaciousness to order Jesus to do something. Specifically, he says, teacher, Lord, right? I command you to judge, not between me and my brother fairly, but to judge in my favor, judge against my brother and judge for my case, right? Judge in my favor, basically. What's going on here? What is this guy doing? Consider these words from theologian Justo Gonzalez. He gives a very clear understanding of what's going on. He writes this, quote, Amid a crowd that is amazed at the teachings of Jesus, a young man appears concerned about his own wealth and about how to deal with a brother who may be withholding what belongs to him. For him, Jesus is an opportunity to validate his claim to an inheritance, but Jesus will not be manipulated. Rather than taking sides with the man, he challenges the very basis of his requests. A crucial difference between the God of the Bible and many of the prevailing religions of that time is, while the main purpose of those religions is to manipulate or appease the God, so that they will do what the worshiper desires. The God of Israel is always sovereign, far above human attempts at religious manipulation. The purpose of biblical religion is not to have a God to do what we desire, but rather to have us do what God desires. Thus, even though it is true that in being overly concerned with material wealth, the man errs, it is also true that the underlying that error is an even greater one, trying to use the power and authority of Jesus to get what he wants. What's he saying? He's saying that this man is trying to manipulate Jesus so that he can get Jesus to give him what he wants, which isn't Jesus. He wants money, right? This is why Jesus says, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? In a sense, what Jesus is really asking is, who do you think you are? Who are you to tell me how to use my authority as judge? Are you the one who installed me as the judge? Are you the one where your authority is greater than my authority to judge and therefore you can manipulate how I judge others, right? Is that what you're trying to say? Is that what you're trying to do? You see, Jesus is trying to point to this young man that though he appears by what he says, that Jesus is his teacher, that Jesus is his Lord, that Jesus is the authority that he submits to, in reality, there's another authority that he submits to, another authority that in his mind is far greater than the authority of Jesus, evidenced by the fact that he assumes that to order Jesus around on how he uses his judging authority, right? You see, here we begin to see the complexity of material wealth. You see, Christian, I know something. I know that when most of you in here read verse 15 and you hear Jesus saying that a person's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession, many of you kind of internally roll your eyes a little bit, right? And you get a little dismissive and you think to yourself, well, Jesus... Duh, everyone knows that. Every Christian worth his salt knows this. This is something I already know. This is so basic, so elementary, as if to say that you've mastered this idea, that you've mastered this teaching, which further is saying that you would never do this. You would never be like this guy. You would never be someone who would be so consumed by covetousness and ever think in such ridiculous ways that the essence of life is acquiring more stuff and having it more than everybody else, right? And so you think to yourself, oh, Jesus, I already know this. I don't need to learn this today. This is something I've already learned. I've already graduated from this. This is so beyond me. But then listen again to what Jesus says in verse 15. He says, take care. Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. You see that phrase, take care? Care? Excuse me. Care? Care? 
This is not how young people talk these days. They come up with new words and new ways to pronounce old words. Car, right? Tucker, right? <laughs> Underline that for a minute. You know what it really means? Be careful. Watch out, right? He's giving a very severe, dire tone here when he says this. Be very, very careful. In a sense, what Jesus is saying here, do not underestimate the deceptive power of material wealth. Or if I could put it another way, Jesus is saying, don't be so arrogantly naive into thinking that you are not capable of becoming someone that you think you're not capable of being. Namely, a greedy person who thinks that material wealth and its deception is so simple that you can avoid it. No. Jesus is saying, be careful because it's more sophisticated, more complicated, and therefore more capable of trapping you than you think. I've used this quote before, but I'm going to use it again because I think it's so eye-opening. Tim Keller shared a story in one of his sermons where he talks about greed. Listen to what he said there. He said this, quote, Some years ago, I was doing a seven-part series of talks on the seven deadly sins at a men's breakfast. My wife, Kathy, told me, I'll bet that the week you deal with greed will be the lowest attendance. She was right. People packed it for lust and wrath and even for pride, but nobody thinks they are greedy. As a pastor, I've had people come to me and confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. Greed hides itself from the victim. The money's God's modus operandi, its MO, includes blindness to your own heart. Greed is much more complicated, much more sophisticated than we tend to give credit for. And so we are very foolish into thinking that it's not a real clear and present danger to our soul, right? We just think, oh, you know, I'm a genuine follower of Jesus. I'm spiritually alive. I'm near Christ. And yet what we don't realize is that maybe for some of us, we may not be spiritually alive at all. We could simply be like the walking spiritual dead where we think we're spiritually alive when in fact we are not alive at all. We are far from Christ. Just because you believe that you are spiritually alive in Jesus does not mean that acquiring more and more for yourself is not the real master that's driving your life. That doesn't mean that it's not the real authority that you submit to because it really might be. Greed is very sly. It's very sneaky. And it requires intense introspection, and diagnostic to yourself. Let me ask you, when was the last time you ever gave a real self-examining diagnostic to the nature of your soul as it pertains to material things, to material wealth? Hmm? You might be thinking, well, how do you do that, Pastor John? Sometimes it requires asking yourself really hard, probing questions. In fact, Tim Keller gives a great list of questions that I think we should periodically go to every time we get our paycheck. Take a listen to some of the questions that he asks. He writes this, quote, what are you most afraid of? What do you long for most passionately? Where do you run for comfort? What do you complain about most? What angers you most? What makes you happiest? How do you define yourself to people? What has caused you to be angry with God? What do you brag about? What one thing do you want the most? What do you sacrifice for? Sacrifice namely your time with family, your community, your friendships. If you change one thing in your life, what would it be? Whose approval are you seeking? Is it anyone other than Jesus? What do you want to control or master? What comfort do you treasure the most? You know, if the majority of your answers are money or money-related, that is, you need money to get those answers, then chances are you have underestimated greed. 
And by underestimating greed, you are most likely, in spite of what you may say with your mouth, that Jesus is your teacher, Jesus is your Lord, he's your authority, you may actually be living for another authority. That you might be submitting yourself to another authority known as greed, known as material wealth. Material wealth is very complicated. It's not an easy thing to dismiss. It's not an easy enemy to beat. And so the question is, how is it possible for Christians who seem sincere, or people who think they're Christians and who seem to be sincere, how is it possible for people like that could fall into prey and become a victim to the dangerous complexities of material wealth, to greed? The answer leads me to my next point, the reason for the dangerous complexities of material wealth. Let's pick it up where we left off, verse 16, and it reads as following. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required for you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Come on back. Jesus begins his story, his parable, by introducing to us a character who happens to be already wealthy. Before he even gets this abundance of crops, it tells us in our text that he's already wealthy. How so? Listen to how Jesus describes the land in verse 16. He says what? The land of an average man? The land of a poor man? No, the land of a wealthy man. This dude, this cat was already filthy rich before he hit the lottery, so to speak. Okay? See, land in the ancient world is like prime New York City real estate. It's something that only an exclusive few can enjoy. That was this guy. All right? That was this dude. And it just so happens that in one particular harvest season, he brought in more crops than what he usually did. And now it seemed he has an issue, a conundrum. A problem. What is he going to do with all these extra crops? Remember, extra crops. Not crops that he needs to feed his family, not crops to keep his business going, not crops to feed, or excuse me, to pay for his employees, but extra crops. Crops that go beyond those things. What is he going to do with it? Verse 18. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, you have ample goods, soul, laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What does he do? He keeps it all to himself, for himself, so it can be just for his own enjoyment. That's what he does, right? That's what he does. And when we zoom out and we include the verses that I just spoke of in my previous point about that young man coming to Jesus, asking for him to intervene on this family matter, it's clear that Jesus wants to interpret this wealthy farmer the same way that we see this man presenting himself as someone who is a genuine follower of God, someone who would consider themselves as being genuinely spiritually alive, right? That's how Jesus wants us to see him, okay? Which takes us back to the question that I ended in my first point. How is it possible for someone who sincerely believes they're spiritually alive end up becoming a greedy person just like this person? Well, if we take a closer look at what it says in verses 16 to 20, here Jesus identifies two errors that this farmer, this wealthy person made, okay, that led him into the dangerous complexities of greed. It was the error of land and the error of life. The errors of land and of life. 
Let's quickly go through it. First, the error of land. Look again at what Jesus says at the end of verse 16. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Excuse me. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now notice what Jesus does not say here. He does not say one year a rich man produced plentifully, but he says the land of the rich man produced plentifully. Notice how Jesus is really going out of his way to identify the source of, of why this man is now so filthy rich. He was rich before, but now he's filthy rich. He doesn't say it was because of the man itself, but it was because of the land. He puts all the credit and therefore puts all the responsibility as to why this man is wealthy. And it's not because of this man, it's because of the land, most likely that was given to him. Not the land that he created, right? As if he's God, but land that he was just given, right? All the wealth, all the prosperity came not from the man himself, but from the land. Not from the man himself, but from the land. But then notice how this guy interprets his wealth. Verse 17, right? What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And when he said, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain, my goods. You see the recurring pattern? This guy is saying, I'm the one who's responsible. I take full credit for what the land has given to me. I am the reason, I am the sole reason why I am this successful, why I'm this wealthy, why I have what I have. I am the one who takes full credit. I am the one who does not depend on anyone. I only depended on myself to get this, and therefore I have no one else to answer to, and therefore I have every right to decide how I use this abundance that I now possess, right? I don't have to answer to anybody. It only belongs to me because, after all, it was me, myself, and I who made this happen. And this is where he made the first error. Christian, listen. The Bible teaches... That everything that we have, everything in this created realm, all of it is here because of God. The universe, the galaxy, our solar system, this planet, and everything who lives in it, including yourself, all of that belongs to God. He is the rightful owner of everything, which means practically everything that you possess, everything that you own, anything of material value that you have gotten, even through your hard-earned work, guess what? All of it is from God. It does not belong to you. It belongs to him. Even the things that you think came out of your talent, out of your skill set, guess what? All of it belongs to him. This is something that God is always trying to teach his people over and over. I mean, listen to how Moses spoke to God's people in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Starting in verse 10, we read, When you, this is Moses talking to Israel, When you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. But that is the time to be careful. Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, and decrees that I'm giving you today. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and when your flocks and herds have become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, be careful. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from the slavery in the land of Egypt. Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was so hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. 
He fed you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and test you for your own good. He did all of this so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful. Christian, the moment you start taking credit into thinking, I earned all of this. It's all because of me. I depended on no one else. I'm the self-made man. I'm the self-made woman. You have begun the descent into dangerous complications of material wealth. And you have possibly forfeited the very faith that you proclaim here today. You have fallen into the first error that could lead you to greed. So that's the first error, the error of land. But then we move on to the second error, which is the error of life. Read again with me the first half of verse 20. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. Here Jesus ends the parable where God himself confronts this wealthy farmer, right? And what does he tell him? Sorry to say this, but now I am summoning you into my presence, right? You're dead. Come to me, right? But before he notifies this man of his death, he first calls this man something. What does he call him? fool fool you guys know what a fool is Hmm? you know what a fool is a fool is someone who suffers the consequences of not knowing something that they should know okay again a fool is someone who suffers the consequences of not knowing something they should know a husband who does not know the day of his own anniversary is a fool right husbands better check google calendar tonight right Students who don't know the day of the final is a fool, right? Workers who don't know the deadline where their work is due to their boss is a fool. A fool is someone who suffers for their stupidity. It's someone who suffers the consequences of not knowing something that they were supposed to know. They have no reason not to know, right? That's what this man was. That's why God calls him a fool. Why? Because he did not know something that he had no excuse not knowing, which is what? He is mortal. That he is not immortal, he is mortal. That one day he is going to die. Listen again to how he reasons and therefore justifies him hoarding all the things himself in verse 19. He says this, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. This man assumed that he had, quote-unquote, many years. He believed he had more time than he actually did. And because of that presumption, God called him a fool. And guess what, folks? He's going to call you a fool if you make that same mistake. Listen, none of us in here know when we're going to die. None of us. I don't say that to scare you out of your mind. I, can't, I say that to sober your mind. No one in here knows the last day on earth. No one knows when they're going to breathe their last breath. This could be your last day here. This could be my last day here, right? Sorry, honey, you know. It could be. Nobody knows. One thing you do know, however, with absolute certainty is that that day will come. You will die. You will be no more. And because that is so, it makes no sense, absolutely no sense, to fixate all of your energy, all of your time, all of your worries in planning for a financial future that may not happen, okay? 
It is so stupid, it is so pointless of wasting all of your time and energy planning for a financial future that may not happen. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying that you shouldn't plan for your financial future, that you shouldn't look into retirement, because clearly if you read through the book of Proverbs, you see that admonition over and over, right? Go to the ant, you sluggard, and so forth, right? We see that. But what I am saying, if the only thing that you're constantly fixated on, if the only thing that preoccupies your mind, if the only thing that you're consumed with, right, the only thing is how to figure out how to secure your future, a future that you don't think, you don't know for sure is going to happen. Test, test. Okay, it's going to linger, so I don't know if you want to get a battery or not, but um, hear me? I'm going to uh, scream. Test, test. Yeah? Praise Jesus for batteries. Yes. Praise you, God. I love you. Thank you for those two AA batteries. Material wealth being used for what we're ready to finish the sermon now. Okay. Anyway, okay. <laughs> oh, good grief. Where was I? Okay. Only fixating on a financial future, right? To where you're neglecting other priorities, right? Like your priority to your family your priority to your friends, your priority to your church, your priority to your health, your priority to God. If all of that takes a back seat, because the only thing that's guiding and governing what you do here and now in the present moment is some nebulous future that you don't even know is going to happen because you're trying to make it as financially secure as possible, Jesus is saying that is foolish, right? How many people have you known who've wasted 60, 70 years of their life accruing all this massive wealth, and yet at their funeral, not even their own kids show up, right? Where all their employees who, who kissed his rear end or her rear end don't even show up to the funeral, don't even care. Look at uh, the second half of verse 20 and zero in on that last question that Jesus asks. But God said to him, fool, the night, this night, your soul is required of you and the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? You see that question? Whose will they be? Where's all that going to go to? Who's it going to go to? Right? That question right there is Jesus' subtle hint that this character that he's portraying is someone who neglected his parents, neglected his siblings, neglected his children, neglected his spouse, because no one's going to take it. Who's it going to be? They clearly don't want it, right? 
You see, Jesus is inserting a, a fundamental wisdom issue here, is that when all you care about here and now is a financial security of a future that you don't know even exists to where it calls you to neglect the most important things and people of life, sometimes more important than money, you are an absolute fool. And here's the practical takeaway for you guys. One of the ways that you know you're like this person is if you're always saying later, either literally later to somebody else or you're saying it to your mind. Hey, when are you going to start coming out to church? I'll do that later. Hey, when are you going to start coming out to Oikos Group and building relationships? I'll do that later. Hey, when do you want to go on missions or when do you want to help out, you know, doing missional tribe work and serving the poor? Later, right? Why later? I just got to get ready. You know, I got to get ready for this exam so I can get a good job so that when I get the good job, I can build up retirement. And then when that's all done, then I'll go on missions. Then I'll start serving the church later, 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 later. What are you doing? You're making the same mistake that this fool did. You're assuming time in the future that you may not have, right? It's all later. If you're always saying later, 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 watch out. Chances are you have fallen into the second error of greed. Even though you claim, well, I love Jesus, Pastor John's my pastor. Funny, people call me their pastor, but I've never seen them in like four years. I might run into them and they'll hey, Pastor John, how are you? So good to see you. And they're with a coworker, yeah, this is my pastor. And I'm like, really? I am? Okay. You can come to church later. I'll come later. Right? Those are the two errors. That's how it's possible for anybody who claims the name of Jesus and say, teacher, Lord, king, and yet be spiritually dead and not even know it. And so here's the question. What do we do if we find ourselves this morning with these errors in our lives? Or how can we avoid them from ever coming into our lives? And this leads me to my final point, the solution to the dangerous complexity of material wealth. Read again the final verse of our passage, verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Here, Jesus ends our passage by indirectly telling us how we can avoid these two errors and therefore the danger of the complexity of greed, right? He says that at the end, you have to be rich towards God. Rich towards God. What does that mean to be rich towards God? Well, if you look at it in the original Greek, which I did, Right? In the original Greek in which this was written in, it actually literally says, those who are financially generous towards God. Those who are financially generous towards God will avoid being greedy. So basically what Jesus is saying here is, look, if you want to not be greedy, then you need to be financially generous to God. That's what you need to be. And that's what you need to be. Now, I know some of you are like, wait a minute, red flag, red flag. PJ sounds like he's setting himself up to be one of those health and wealth gospels, right? He's like, oh, he's starting to say, he's starting to get us ready to hear us, you know, hear him say, start giving to the church more, right? Is PJ one of those prosperity preachers that we need to start looking for a new church? No, I am not a prosperity preacher, not at all, okay? But let me explain what Jesus is saying. Whenever people are extremely generous, and I don't mean just simply like, typical generous but really generous out of their mind generous right it's always because they first receive some good fortune in their life that has inspired them to be radically generous right that's how it usually works so for example let's say a guy closes a deal and he makes millions of dollars and the client is so happy even adds a bonus and now he is just killing it and he's so happy that he says to his co-workers you know what Stakes are on me, right? Peter Luger's or whatever. I know some of you guys are like, Peter Luger, please, right? Whatever, right? Whatever the great steakhouse is, right? And you're like, 
I'm taking everyone out, all 20 of you on my team. Let's go, right? Or let's say a couple goes to, you know, a nice bar slash restaurant, and he proposes, and the girl says, yes, right? And he's filled with so much good fortune that he says, round of drinks on the house by me. So generous. We tend to be radically generous when we first receive some good fortune, right? And Jesus knows that's how the human heart works. And so when he says, you need to be radically generous to God, he knows the immediate reaction that we're going to say is, why? What good fortune has God given me? Why would I want to be radically generous to God? What has he done for me? You see what he's doing? Very brilliant. Jesus is going after our money so that it would make us consider the good fortune that he's given to us. You see? And the question is, what is that good fortune? It's the gospel, right? The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says, even though you and I don't deserve any material blessings, whether it be in the form of a house, a bank account, a beating heart in our chest, you know, that is material too, right? Even though none of us in here deserve any of those things because of the fact that we are a bunch of selfish, sinful, greedy people, right, who claim things for ourselves as if we are personally responsible, even though God is the creator of all of it, who has generously given those things to us, even though he should not give those things to us, he does, right? He gives us these things. But here's what's even crazier. The gospel says he gives us something that we could never earn, never take credit for, even if we lived for thousands and thousands of years. What is that? God's forgiving and merciful reconciling love that's the gospel right even if you live for billions of years and did good works for billions of years that will still not be enough for you to earn the amazing love of god the love of god that forgives you of your sins the love of god that imputes christ's righteousness to you because of Jesus' perfect life on earth that he now credits to your life right totally taking away all the unrighteousness that you have done through your sins right? Even your future sins. Why? So that you can have eternal life with him, which will be involving what? Revelation 21. Eat, drink, and be merry. Isn't that ironic? The very thing that we try to get through amassing material wealth so that we can eat, drink, and be wealthy, right? Eat, drink, and be merry. Even when we get, if you talk to them, they're not merry. They're not feeling very satiated with what they eat they're still feeling thirsty with what they drink right god says i'm going to give that to you not because of what you earn but because of what jesus earned on your behalf as your substitute as your savior by coming into this world as jesus dying on the cross for your sins living that perfect life and then giving you that credit of perfection onto you right so that you could have an eternal life where you truly eat where you truly drink Right? And be thirsty no more, remember John 13, and where you truly are merry for all eternity. Right? When you get that, then and only then will you truly be radically generous to God. Right? But here's the thing. God already owns everything, so how can you be generous with God with the things that he already owns? You can't. But what he does mean there is when you're generous to the causes that God is passionate for, like serving the poor, giving to the needy, helping the orphan, the widow, right? Those who are less 
fortunate, those who are broken and downcast, those who've been rejected, whether it is that child that's thrown out into the street or even the child that's not wanted in the womb and the mother's trying to kill it, or even the immigrant who has no legal way of coming in and yet they're here somehow and have no one advocating for them, right? These are the ones that we are to be advocating for. These are the ones whom God says you need to be generous towards. But more practically speaking and more immediately speaking, another way that you can be radically generous to God is by simply living a moderate life financially. Even though you could afford a bigger house, a nicer car, a bigger screen TV, you choose not to, but you just live with what you need, right? If you live like that, you are communicating to God that you are being generous towards him. He will see that as generosity towards him. You know why? Because what are you communicating to God when you choose just to live, not beyond your means, but within your means, and then giving the rest away? You know what you're saying? You're saying, God, I don't need these things to eat, drink, and be merry because you already secured that for me through your son, Jesus. So why waste on this, on something that's not going to be as tasty, not as thirst-quenching, and not as really joyful as it initially seems to be? When it's just going to fade away, why not just focus on something that's really going to be tasty, what's really going to quench my thirst, what's really going to give me joy for all eternity? Therefore, I don't need to waste this money on something that gives me no good return anyway. Let me now use this instead to serve the poor, to serve the widow, to serve the orphan, and so forth. Do you see? That is how you avoid greed. That's how you get untangled to the dangerous complexities of material wealth. Here's my question. Where are you in that? Where do you find yourself this morning when it comes to these things? I want to end my message by asking you to consider some practical next steps, just some ways in which you can personally apply some of the things that we've talked about. Number one, as always, if you're here today and you're not a believer of Jesus, but now you're ready to become one, if today's message was just the tipping point that you needed to embrace Christ, take this time now. Go to Christ and acknowledge him for who he is. Make him the Lord and Savior of your life. Take this time asking for the forgiveness of sins and then commit your life to him, making him the center and meaning of your life. Number two, Take some time this week and ask if the two reasons I mentioned as to why we fall into greed is something you struggle with. Do you sincerely believe that you earned everything that you have? Do you sincerely think that you're the main reason, only reason why you have what you have? Number two, do you tend to say later to other important priorities because you're so obsessed with trying to realize a nebulous financial future that may not be waiting for you? If you answer yes to these questions, This is the time where you need to repent, where you need to ask God to forgive you and ask God to help you change because you can't change yourself. That's something only God can do. One practical way that you can do it after repent, read a good book. (laughs) I always say that. Read a good book. I'm like LeVar Burton up here. Read a book. Take a look. It's in a book, right? Two books that I would recommend, The Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey, Money, Possessions, and Eternity by Randy Alcorn. Those two books will change your life, right? And then finally, take some time in your Oikos groups, brainstorming ways that you can use your excess wealth to bless the people in this city, right? This is serious. Take some time to really consider 
what this might look like, how as a church we can gather together in our Oikos groups and really make an impact with the wealth that we're doing. In fact, we're so serious that starting this fall, September, we're going to do a study on this material called When Helping Hurts, the Oikos group experience. I don't know why it's a small group. It must be a typo, right? This is the material we're going to be studying in your Oikos groups, which means if you're not in an Oikos group, you're going to miss out on some solid biblical training that can change not only your attitude about money, but how you view those who need it the most, okay? So if you're not in an Oikos group, take this time to sign up for one, right? If there's an Oikos group not open yet, be patient. We have leaders on the way ready to start one. So be sure you talk to Pastor James about starting and serving in an Oikos group or becoming part of one. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would help us to see the truth of your beautiful majesty. Lord, you teach us that wealth and greed and, and, and trying to see life as nothing more as the abundance of having more. God, it's so easy for us to underestimate of how that can easily entangle us. Father, have mercy and equip us so that we do not fall victim to such deception. Help us to see that only you are the source where we can truly eat, where we can truly drink, and truly be merry. Help us to know that it's in our status as children of God and the destiny that comes with that status where we know we will forever be with you. And so with that firm conviction, help us to live our days on this earth being radically generous and being advocates of those who are without so that we can show them who they need most of all within them. They need the Christ. They need the Holy Spirit. God, would you help us to live this out and challenge us so that we can rise above it and therefore be a source of blessing to those around us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.